But I want to begin this morning with a quote by Henry Nouwen, uh, who wrote a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son. A little bit of a long quote, but it's pretty powerful, and I think that it speaks to where a lot of us have been. He said this, over and over again, I have left home. I have fled the hands of blessing and run off to faraway places searching for love. This is the great tragedy of my life and of the lives of so many I meet on my journey. Somehow I have become deaf to the voice that calls me the beloved, have left the only place where I can hear that voice, and have gone off desperately hoping that I would find somewhere else what I could not find at home. I leave home every time I lose faith in the voice that calls me the beloved and follow the voices that offer a great variety of ways to win the love I so much desire. And I'm constantly developing strategies to defend myself and thereby assure myself of the love I think I need and deserve. And in so doing, I move far away from my father's home and choose to dwell in a distant country. The heart of today's message is simple. Come home. The heart of today's message is simple in the fact that so many of us have found ourselves in places that we can't get back from. We've wandered too far. We've wandered in directions that we don't know how to navigate our way. We're stumbling around in darkness that we have no clue where we're supposed to go. We've made so many poor decisions that trying to unravel that pretzel is impossible. As I began to develop this lesson and look at Amos and I began to pull out what I thought was the heart of it, this idea of being lost. Last night, God gives me the perfect illustration. Now, I left evidence to show you that I'm not making this up. All right. I won't tell you what the evidence is, but uh, you'll find out later. Here's what happened. I'm in the back room. I'm in my office working on the sermon last night. Everybody's kind of setting up for this Pop Rocks thing out here in the lobby. The lobby sounded like there's a lot of people. Jenny and her crew were all moving around, moving stuff. Well, then I had to use the restroom, so I go on out into the lobby, and everybody's gone. I hear this weird noise. I'm like, what what is that noise? So I, I can't see anything, so I just keep walking. All of a sudden, I hear the noise again. It's right next to me, and I see this movement out of the corner of my eye. I look over. There on the window sills a bird. In the lobby. I'm like, what? What's a bird doing in the lobby? Come on, we don't raise birds here. What's going on? Birds don't go to church. All right? Although the year of animal evangelism is going obviously very well because they're responding to the call is actually what's happening. Anyway, so this bird's in the lobby, and I'm thinking, what in the world am I going to do with a bird in the lobby? What if I go up next to it and start flying down the hallway? Am I going to chase a bird around the whole, you know, church and everything? So I don't quite know what to do. It's sitting there, but it's scared to death. So it's ramming its head into the window, right? It's so hard that its little neck is bending completely in half, and it's like, I can see it. It's just outside. Must get through this glass. Can't handle it, all right? It's so sad. And I'm thinking, what are you doing in here? Everything you were built to do, the whole flying gig, that's out there. All your food, out there. You don't eat cotton candy. That's in here. Go out there. Do something else, right? I didn't understand why in the world he would be in here, but somehow I thought it was a great idea to explore and come in here. So then I decide, must catch the bird. So I go in, and I don't know why I thought of this, because think right now instantly, what would you do? How would you catch a bird? Because I'm thinking this is going to be hard. And then an idea comes to me. I don't know if I got it from Animal Planet. I don't know where I got it from. 
Steve Irwin, perhaps. So I decide to go get a towel. All right, because what you do is you throw a towel over the little bird and the bird will calm down and you can pick up the bird. So I go in and I get a blue soothing color of a dish towel and I grab the towel and I go to capture the bird. So I go in and the bird's like, I knew it. Here he comes. He's going to kill me. Oh, my gosh. So he's ramming his head as fast as he can. And I go up and in all my stealth and dexterity, I go up next to it and I throw the towel and miss. Just falls right on the ground. I'm like, are you kidding me? Come on. Now I gotta go next to the bird. The bird's like, I knew it! I knew you were trying to capture me! Right? And I'm trying to lean in going, nothing going on here. I'm trying to pick up my stupid towel. Then go, must get closer to bird to capture bird. Gotta get closer. So, I scoot up on bird, and I hurl the towel over, and it lands right on him. And sure enough, he calms down, he mellows out, and I grab him, and I lift him out. The minute I get to the door, pow! He's gone. I was like, Bird catcher extraordinaire. Yes. All right. Do only animals wander into places that they can't get out of? Do only birds like to explore areas and then realize they're caught? Is it only animals that can't find their way home? How many of you have either read the book by John Krakauer or heard about the recent movie directed by Sean Penn, Into the Wild? Anybody ever heard of that, that book or movie? Okay. Here's a story. 24-year-old guy, basically wild at heart, wants to go out and experience life, tired of the whole going in the office, do the office gig. He is just like Mr. Extreme in his heart. He wants to be a free spirit. So he travels around. He's homeless for a long time. And anyway, he decides that what he wants to do is go up into Alaska, into the Alaskan wilderness, and go into the wild and live off the land. That's his goal. Now, he's not a super incredible, brilliant guy in the wild, but he decides he can handle it. He's done a little bit of research. He can do this on his own. He never comes home. That's the movie. That's the book. And just to ruin it for you, um, he kept a journal. And so the movie and the story is about why he didn't come home. And what you learn is as he was writing out his journal, he wanted to come home at the end. He just couldn't anymore as a matter of fact it was stunning that the last note that he wrote he put on he was living in a small bus that was out in the middle of the wild that had been abandoned he was living in this little uh bus and he had put a note on it and it said this it says if you can read this please dear god help me this is not a joke i've gone out looking for berries i'll be back please help me Christopher McCandless. Well, no one came to help. And he died out there. I wonder how many of us have either seen people or ourselves gone through an emotional death just like that. We got to a place where even when we wanted to come home, we couldn't anymore. And nobody's coming to get you. You see, when we walk through this life, God is reality and our moral compass and our direction. When we close the compass and stick it in our pocket, we get into some crazy scenarios. As a matter of fact, the fill in the blank in front of you is kind of one of those no-duh statements. It's this. Ignoring God leads you into some terrible places. Ignoring God leads you into some terrible places. 
Why in the world would we ignore God? I don't know. We've always done it. Isn't it funny how many stories in the Bible go back to the Garden of Eden? No matter how many truths in reality or in society, we'll go right back into the Garden of Eden. And here's the simple story. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and there's a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, don't eat it. Well, sure enough, a snake shows up, and then Satan, in the persona of a serpent, starts debating with Eve. And he says, hey, what's the deal with that tree? And she said, well, God told me not to eat it. He said, why? She goes, I don't really know. He just told me to trust me on this one. And then the serpent goes, well, I'll share with you. You know why? He doesn't want competition. He's holding out on you. Because what happens is, it's a tree in the knowledge of good and evil for a reason. You're going to eat it. Your eyes are going to be open. You're going to become just as brilliant as he is. And he doesn't want that kind of challenge. So basically, you could have some discovery, but God doesn't want you to have that. He's trying to hold you back. Now, this is how Scripture explains the process. It says she goes up to the tree. She looks at the tree and begins to reason out the issue. She looks at it. It says she saw that it was desirable for food. It looked good, looked like it was going to taste good, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom. How did she know that? A talking snake told her. That's not where you want to get your information. We all following this? And she said... It's a good idea for me to eat it. I've reasoned it out. She reaches out, takes some of the fruit, eats it, gives it to her husband. He eats it. Bam. All of a sudden, what occurred? Were their eyes open? Did they gain wisdom? Yes, they did. Is it what they wanted? No, it's not. The minute their eyes were open, they looked at each other and went, oh, my gosh, if you said no to God, I can't trust you. What are you going to do to me if you're going to rebel against him? Wow. I can't be safe with you. And a schism went right down between mankind. And God walks in and he goes, what would you do? Well, we ate of the tree. Why? Well, we were exploring. It seemed like a good idea at the time. What did I tell you? Don't touch the fruit. Did you get what you wanted? No, I didn't know that was going to be the consequence. I guess you should have listened to me, huh? Yeah, I was listening to this conference guy. His name was Tim Reiner from Belay Enterprises. I'm listening to this conference speaker, and he shares this thing. He says, isn't the heart of all the problems that we're addicted to self? And I was thinking, dang, that's a great point. He said, well, let me explain it like this. Here's my definition. When what's most important to me is most important, you know you're addicted to self. And I went, wow, that just pretty much sums up reality. When what's most important to you is now the definition of what's most important in the world, you're addicted to self. I thought that is the problem. We keep thinking we can figure it out better. We keep thinking that we've got a grasp on this, and somehow God doesn't get it. I got needs, God, you're not fulfilling them, so I'm going to go figure it out, and I'm going to go meet those needs another way. Because you are too slow, you don't get my situation, or what you think is fulfilling is little tiny pansy Christian stuff, and it's just not cutting it in my life. Right? Hmm. Where'd that lead you? I'll tell you where it leads me. It keeps leaving me empty, because I keep believing that next time it will fill me up. See, when you deny reality, which is what God is, you're only left with one option fantasy and that is where we live 
We live in the fantasy that what we think is important is really important. We live in the fantasy that what we think will fill us up will really fill us up. But the truth of the matter is only God is accurate. We're just playing games. We don't know what we need. We don't know what's best. But God does. But will we trust him in his word? Doesn't seem we will. Would you turn with me to the book of Amos? Amos chapter 2, verse 4, page 648. Amos chapter 2, if you hit the book of Daniel, go two books to the right and you'll find it. It's a little bit easier. Amos is tiny. Amos chapter 2, verse 4, page 648. You see, what we're about to see is an area of judgment where God judges his own chosen people because they've lost their way. They've made so many poor decisions. They've gone into such corruption. They've so lost their way that they couldn't even come home if they wanted to. But they don't want to. So I guess we'll never know. God's kindness had not led to repentance. Therefore, his judgment surely will. I'm just going to read the first couple of verses and then we'll pray for the word this morning. And then we'll tear it apart. It begins like this. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they've been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed, I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are about to lay bare the motives of our heart. That, Lord, we think we can do it better. We think that you do not know what we crave. We think that you are holding out on us because the enemy has told us those lies. We bought into it. We continue to fight you. We continue to say you're going to understand. We look for loopholes. And in so doing, we've gone through doors that we cannot come out of. May you save us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, that's the south. You remember last week when we did this bit of history lesson, Israel had split into two. You have the ten tribes in the north known as not only the north, but known as Israel or known as their capital city, Samaria. But then there's the south where there's two tribes also known as Judah. Now remember, Amos is coming from the south and doing all his ministry in the north. And as a matter of fact, the majority of this whole book is about the north. But just like he began with the outside surrounding pagan nations receiving judgment, so he touches base on the south and then redirects his attention to the north. It's almost like he's walking out of his own home territory, looking backwards and saying, hey guys, judgment's coming on us too. I want you to think that we're excused. Oh, it'll hit just a little bit later. But for now, I have to go talk to the north. And he walks and gives them a message of impending judgment. For indeed, history tells us that in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire does go through and take over the north. But in 586 BC, the south is wiped out as well by the Babylonians. Oh, judgment is coming upon both sides. But the north is first, and they receive a warning. Why? For three sins of Judah, the south, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Why? Because they have rejected the law of the Lord. Because they have not kept his 
laws, or decrees. Because they have been led astray by false gods. That word gods is interesting in Hebrew. It's kazab. And what it means is lies. That's actually a better translation. That they have been led astray by lies. They're buying into the lies of their culture. They're buying into the lies of the enemy. The same gods, the same lies their ancestors followed. Therefore, I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Is it possible to choose poorly that starts a vicious cycle that once you choose poorly, it changes your mindset. Then you choose poorly again and you sink deeper. Then you choose poorly again and you sink deeper until eventually you can't even tell which way is right and wrong. It's like a quicksand. I think it is possible. As a matter of fact, the New Testament addresses the exact same issue. Humanity is the same throughout history. Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, had something to say about this very same topic. Would you keep your finger there and turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter 1. It's page 796. In your Bibles that were handed to you, page 796. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. In rather clear fashion, in dramatic fashion, Paul says this to the church in Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news that Jesus died for your sins and can set you free. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. To say of everyone who pulls himself up by their bootstraps? Does it say for everyone that reasons it out and figures out their own way home? Does it say any of that? Ah, but it says for everyone who believes. Believes God at his word? Yes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith. From first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Faith is not the heart of faith, obedience to God and taking him at his word. Is that not the definition? So the righteous live by what? Doing what God says, not by finding their own way. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who what? Suppress the truth by their wickedness. In other words, their deeds make it worse. They have a bad idea, they follow through with it, it leads into a bad place, and they make another poor decision, and like I said, it just keeps going down. They're suppressing the truth by what they're choosing to do, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, meaning his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged or traded the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts 
to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged, they traded the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile, meaning they reasoned it out, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. Verse 31. In the end, they are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Are we any different? You know, I have somebody that's really close to me in my life that's been around for a long time in my life, and they have an astounding, staggering ability to make poor decisions. It's almost like a spiritual gift. I actually, I look at it and I go, no way. By sheer percentages, you should make accidental good decisions. And yet you do not. It's amazing. To such a degree, I remember just as I was growing up, I was thinking, are you kidding me? Is this not obvious? I mean, clearly, you're constantly making bad decisions. How is this possible? And then one day it dawned on me. Oh my gosh, what it's like is that she's in a room. With 13 doors, one door is the way out, the way home, but 12 doors lead to nowhere, or worse, they lead to chaos, and yet every door looks identical. There are no markings of right and wrong. There are no signs for what is good and will lead to health. It's literally random. And so as she randomly picks doors and walks through, it's like, well, there's another bad decision. And you're going, how did you make it? Well, I don't know. All the doors look identical. How in the world are you even seeing any of this stuff? But from the outside, everybody can see the obvious. Everybody's looking, going, no, 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 don't go that way. Don't go that way. Have you ever had anybody come to you and they give you a scenario that's super obvious to you and they're boggled? Right? They'll say something like this. I have a real problem in my life. Can you help me out? Well, sure. What do you got? Well, I'm being really, really mean to this person, and they don't like me. And you're like, hmm, that is a tough one. How about not being mean? Have you ever tried that? Maybe they'll like you if you're not being mean to them. And they're like, maybe. And you're like, no, not maybe. It's an obvious one. That's actually the easy questions of life. What are you talking about? But they literally have no bearing, no direction. They're totally lost. And they cannot make a right decision even when they want to. Have you guys all heard about this writer strike in Hollywood? You got that? Okay. It has brought about the apocalypse of all TV. Right? It's like all that we know has melted down, okay? So there's, there's no good TV on anymore. But I happen to be a fan of one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse called reality TV. I don't know if you, you've heard this. There's like death and horror and destruction in reality TV. It's actually the four horsemen. Anyway, so it's now dominated all of TV. And so they're basically all human experiments on TV, right? Isn't that what a, a reality show is? Well, I came across one. I went, no way. So I T-voted. Click. Okay. Right? Which is what they were hoping I would do. It's called Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew. Anybody ever seen this? Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew. Okay. Here's a brilliant idea. Um, you are addicted to something, and so you're now going to detox, and what would be better than having a camera follow you around while you detox? 
I'm thinking, no way. Okay, do you guys know what detox is like? Detox is an awful lot of throwing up, okay? What better than to have it filmed? Okay, a lot of throwing up, a lot of shivers, hallucinations going back and forth. There's all kinds of insanity. There's all kinds of sweats and feeling horrible and miserable. And what a perfect thing to put on television. So these celebrities get together. One of them is, uh, and I keep slipping on the guy's name, Daniel Baldwin, one of the Baldwin brothers. So he's on there and a bunch of other people are on there and a bunch of young people are on there and they're addicted and they're thinking, what a great way to get on TV. There's one guy that's way worse than everybody else, okay? And he used to be on a, a show in the 70s and 80s, and he is just gone. I mean, the first day that they're there in the celebrity rehab, he has to be taken to the hospital that night because he's going to die. He's that bad off. He literally just looks checked out of the world. He's being held together by medication. I mean, he is so far gone. And it's almost like everyone else seems totally normal in relation to him. The first day they're there, they're wheeling him out to the paramedics ambulance waiting outside. And you should have seen these young kids watch him go by because they're all addicted to something. But they just started their detox. So they watch him go by and their eyes are enormous. They're like saucers. And they're like, I don't ever want to be like that guy. And you're like, do you understand why you're here? Because you're going to be just like that guy. But they think that there's a qualitative difference between them and him. There's not. It's just one of degree. Understand? But this man, I, and so many people have shared things about addiction. They'll go, well, it's a disease. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. You can, you can choose to drink and you can choose not to drink. Don't play this disease thing. But then I came to the realization that there's a point where you step over a line that you can't walk back. It's not about choices anymore. Your choices have been removed. You are no longer in control of the ship. You have no access. Your rudder is broken. And you cannot steer home. You're done. That's where this man is. He can't come home if he tried. That's what they're talking about. Is it possible to go through doors? It's almost like in your life. You're going through doors, and whenever you go through, it closes behind you with a click. You're like, what was that? I don't know. I'm exploring. Go through a click, click, click. All of a sudden, you turn around and go, okay, that was fun. I want to go home now. The door's locked. All right, you guys, who's messing with me? What's up? Hello? No one's coming to get you. There is no way home. That's where Israel is. God will use the phrase, they don't know how to do what is right. They've ignored my law to such a degree, they're gone. And nobody's coming to get them. And they'll never make it home. Picks it up in verse 6. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, now we're in the north, for the rest of the book, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Why? They sell the righteous for silver. That word in Hebrew, the phrase says, they make those that are declared not guilty, guilty for cash. That's how messed up their justice system was. They sell the needy for a pair of sandals. That's not shoes. That's the cheapest form of sandals. Piece of wood, straps of leather, strap it on. For that, they're selling out people that are truly needy. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. They're that corrupt, that far gone. You do not treat the poor like that, for God is near to the poor. God is near to those that are trampled down, and he will not put up with it. 
But it's not just injustice that they're messed up. Their morality is totally skewed. They're completely gone. Look at the next verse. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. You only got two options for what that means. It's either they're both having sex with the same servant girl or both having sex with a temple prostitute. Your choice. Does it matter? Not really. As a matter of fact, Paul highlights this exact same problem in 1 Corinthians 5.1. He says, a man shares his father's wife, and you guys are allowing this in the church? You're proud about it? What is wrong with you? Even the pagans don't do that. Is it possible for a believer to get so lost that they begin to do stuff that the world looks back and goes, what's wrong with you? Man, you're whacked. Is that possible? Absolutely. The whole world is looking at Israel and going... Well, you guys are really trying to take this thing to an extreme. You're way off base. When the world has to correct you for your behavior and you're a believer, something's seriously wrong. You understand? More than that, verse 8. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. What does that mean? Well, there was an old ancient way of doing business. And the idea was if you owed me money, I could take your coat for collateral. But the law stated that if you were poor, I had to give your coat back for nighttime because that's what you would wrap up in to keep warm. So in other words, you're not allowed by law to keep someone's coat overnight. They were keeping everyone's coat overnight and they were partying on it. They're just relaxing and laying back and going, who cares if that guy gets his coat back or not? He owes me money. As a matter of fact, there was even a specific law that said you never take a widow's coat ever in pledge. She needs that to keep warm. Don't you dare do that. They didn't care. They had thrown God's law completely away from them. And it closes with, in the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. In other words, they're partying with what they're ripping people off for. And they're completely okay with that. Do you understand why God is so angry? They're hurting people. They're corrupt. Their justice, their morality, everything is thrown into the toilet. They don't care anymore. And God said, no, 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 no. You've gone too far. Unacceptable. He said, that's how you act to me. You want to know, Israel, how I act to you? Would you like to have me recount how I've treated you? Fine. Here's how I acted. Verse 9. I destroy the Amorite before you. Though he was as tall as cedars and as strong as the oaks, I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. What does that mean? You guys remember the story that when Israel came out of Egypt, they were supposed to go into the promised land. You remember that? People live in the promised land. So what do you do with those people? Well, they got to get moved. Remember? Well, those people that lived in that region, the region was called Canaan. So they were called Canaanites, right? Well, out of all the Canaanites, that's a general term for a bunch of people that were the pagan people against Israel. Well, some of the toughest out of all the Canaanites were people called the Amorites. That's who he's referring to. As a matter of fact, Israel was scared to death of these people. They were the big, nasty, tall guys. And God said, I'll take out your worst enemy. I will take out the strongest guy. I moved him out before you. You go, well, that's not very fair. God wasn't being nice to the Amorites. Have you guys ever read Genesis 15, 16? It says this. God even tells the Jewish people, in the future, I'm going to keep you in bondage for 400 years while I deal with the Amorites. I'm going to give them 400 years to come back to me and try to work with me. And you know what? They're going to consistently rebel against me. And so after 400 years, I'm going to bring you in and wipe them off the face of the earth. But I'm keeping you in hold till I deal with them. Is God fair? You better believe God's fair. 
God says, I wiped out the Amorites before you. Not only that, I brought you up out of Egypt. Have you guys forgotten? I did ten amazing, world-changing miracles that came down and snapped the neck of the Egyptian empire. I did the impossible for you. I led you through the desert, 40 years in the desert, to give you the land of the Amorites. In other words, I moved 2.5 million people through a barren, desolate wasteland, and you never went hungry. I don't do that for everybody. I did it for you. I rained down manna from heaven for you. And what have you done with my grace? I raised up prophets from among your sons to speak for me. I raised up Nazarites, men who would be vowed to me in respect and righteousness. I raised them up from your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord. How did you react? You made the Nazarites drink wine, which they weren't allowed to do, and you commanded the prophets not to prophesy. You shut down every opportunity I tried to get in touch with you. You didn't even not tune into the frequency of my voice on the radio. You shut the radio off, and you want nothing to do with me. Now then, I will crush you. As a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. The warrior will not save his life. For the archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, says the Lord. Hear this word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. Against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. In other words, what made it worse? They were his kids. What made it worse? They got all the good stuff. With all that blessing came responsibility. They took it for granted, and that made their sins more grievous. You guys, let's be honest about this for a second. Why do you sin? Because you think you'll get away with it. So do I. I sin... Because I'm going to be forgiven. Yeah? If you really thought you were going to get burned up today, would you sin? Eh, maybe. Probably not. But I sin because God will understand. I sin because of the cross. He died for my sin. I'm going to get forgiven for it. So I let some stuff slide. Don't you? Paul addresses the subject and he said, Really? You're using the love of God as a license to sin. No, 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 no. That's not how it's to go. But do you understand that's exactly what we're doing? We're doing what Israel did. But we think somehow it's different for us. We think somehow God's like, ah, you Christians. You silly sinners. Here's what he said. Verse 3. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to do so? No. Does a lion roar in the thicket when he has no prey? No. Does he growl in his den when he has not caught when he has caught nothing? No. Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when no snare has been set? No. Does a trap spring up from the earth when there is nothing to catch? No. But when a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? Yes. 
when disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Yes. What's the point? Cause and effect. When I sweep in with judgment on you, don't you dare play this game of, God, you're picking on me. God, you somehow are grading on a curve. God, somehow you're being mean to me. No, it's cause and effect. You did this, I promise you judgment, I'm coming down on you. That's it. Don't make it anything any more than it should be. It's very simple. You are my people. I saved you. You've taken it for granted. I will judge you. Wow. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Oh, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? In other words, you come to me, you say you don't like my message, you say that I shouldn't open my mouth, you say to me, Amos, keep your mouth shut, you're ruining morale, you're killing us here. God has spoken, do you think I can say anything different? I've been given a message, that's all I know. You don't want to know? You want disaster to overtake you without any warning, you want no explanation? Oh, I'll give you an explanation, but it's too late. Judgment will come. Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod, that's the Philistines, to the fortresses of Egypt, the nation to the south. Assemble yourselves, pagan nations, on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within Israel. See the oppression of my people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who hoard plunder and loot in their fortresses. They've gone too far. Now the pagan world is even looking at him and going, you are so messed up. And God said, I will judge my children. They will not escape. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun the land. He will pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. You think you're going to be saved. Is that it? You're banking on salvation. Because God has always saved Israel. Is that what you think? Oh, let me tell you how you're going to get saved. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved. Those who sit in Samaria on the edge of their beds in luxury, in Damascus, on their couches of luxury. Hear this and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. Those bogus set up golden cows that you think are your gods. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished. Oh, you think your wealth will save you? You think that you're excluded from this? You think that in some way you can insulate yourself from my judgment? I will destroy you. I will find you. I will seek you out and you will not escape. For you have taken me for granted. They've lost their way. I don't, I don't know why you're here today. I know why you think you're here today. But I don't know why you're here today. I don't know where you've lost your way. I don't know what it is. I don't know if you're a believer and... You've just gotten so far lost into sin, you couldn't turn around if you tried. I don't know if you're brand new to this whole gig and you're trying to say, I'm so lost, that's why I'm here. I'm hoping that Jesus will help me out. You know what? Jesus will help you out. 
Because let me give you some good news. God's interested in lost stuff. As a matter of fact, Jesus told three parables of lost stuff, but we only focus on the last one. The prodigal son, that's the one that we're all pretty clear on, right? What happens? Young guy, done with the whole business, wants to go off and do his own thing, explore, go into the wild. Doesn't go super well and he wants to come home. So he walks home. You remember? His father's waiting for him. You know, that's great if you could get home. So I tell you, this is my challenge. If you can go home, go home. But if you can't, I got two other stories for you. You see, just prior to the prodigal son, there's a story about a shepherd that has a sheep that has lost his way. And you know what? That sheep ain't ever coming home. Because he's lost his way. He's like the bird that flew into our lobby. He doesn't know how to get back. He can see it through the glass, but all he'll do is ram his head against the wall. You know what's cool about that? The shepherd goes and gets him and brings him home. And that gets ugly. Because usually the way you bring home a wandering sheep is you break his legs so he doesn't do it again. Is that what it's going to take? But there's a final story. Because some of you are done fighting against the Lord, but you can't even muster the strength to do anything. You are not coming home. Ah, that's the first story for you. A woman had gold coins and she lost one of them. You know, the answer to that is that's an inanimate object and it's never coming home. And it's not going to wander. Can't do anything. It's just a coin. Until she scoured the whole house, went and found it, picked it up, and brought it home. See, the good news is that the Savior we serve will bring you home if you're willing. Ah, but so many of us are not ready, right? We still have more living to do. Still got more games to play. Still got some more grace to use. Yeah? I know it because I live it. When are we coming home? This is the year of doing stuff. Yeah? So you can keep thinking about it. You can keep reasoning it out. You can keep looking for loopholes. You can play the game for a really long time. Hope you don't die in the process. But you can play games. Or you can do stuff. As I close in prayer, altars open. It's called daytime with God. Yeah? You do stuff. You get out of your seat. You come up here. And you talk with God. That's it. Do you have to come up here? Nope. Sure don't. You can talk to God right where you're at. But doing something sometimes changes your spirit. Maybe you need to come up here. They're going to play a song quietly. Jeremy's going to play behind while I'm praying. And we're going to close in a worship song. We're all going to go home. We're going to go out and have cotton candy and party and hang out and have fun. But you know what? Before that, come home. Otherwise, what are we doing here? Let's pray. Lord, for some of us, coming home means a matter of choosing to obey. For others of us, we couldn't come home if we tried. Either way, you're a savior. 
Lord, some of us it's disobedience. Some of us it's just flat-out depravity. There's nothing we can do. But you have an answer for both. I ask, Lord, that you would save us today, no matter where we're at. Draw us to yourself and call us home. For the warning you gave to Israel should be our warning as well. For what will it take to bring us back? Would you reach in and tug on our hearts? Remold us, give us new ones, in Jesus' name.